Hey everyone, I wanted to take a moment and let you know that starting in January, we will be moving the show to Mondays. Our hope is that this will give you time during your work commute to give us a listen instead of having to wait for the weekend. The first episode in 2021 will air on January 4th, where my wife Bethany and I will be discussing the rarely known as a comic book movie, Josie and the Pussycats. So start looking for the show to drop on Mondays. In fact, let's start calling them Moving Panel Mondays. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Chances are that before 2008, you could ask any two girls and a guy to name a Marvel movie, and they'd be more silent than Chaplin. But it doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to figure out that this character took a little weird science and became the heart and souls of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. On this episode of Moving Panels, we discuss Iron Man. Only you. Welcome to Moving Panels, the podcast where we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. I'm your host, Laramie Wells, and joining me today is a longtime friend, Mr. Reese Fowler. How are you, Reese? Uh, I'm doing quite well, Laramie. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, you were one of the first people I, th- I thought of. In fact, a uh, little behind the scenes here, when I was getting ready to do the podcast uh, and wanted to kind of check my recording and audio equipment and all, Reese was actually the person I contacted to uh, help me test everything out. That's right, Laramie. I was number one, and then I got pushed to the back. <laughs> well, that's not 100% true. Uh, Reese, we did actually record, again, but behind the scenes here, we actually did record an episode, but later I discovered the sound quality wasn't all that great. And so Reese was kind enough to return so that we could uh, give him the proper episode that he deserved. And we do appreciate that very much. Thank you, sir. You are quite welcome. So today we are going to talk about the granddaddy of them all, if you you want to consider the modern superhero movie, and that is Iron Man. So, little background. This movie was released in May of 2008. It was the big kick-off-the-summer blockbuster for that movie. It was the first film that was under the Marvel Studios title. Before this, Marvel had licensed out their characters. The X-Men was owned by Fox. Spider-Man was owned by Sony. In fact, still is. Fantastic Four owned by Fox. Uh, Blade was New Line and and a few others. Um, But Marvel was trying to get their properties back as best they could. And they decided to launch the Marvel Cinematic Universe under this new banner of Marvel Studios. And it all started from there. Let me ask you a question, Reese. What was your knowledge of Iron Man prior to this movie? Well, let's be honest. Uh, I'm not a very big comic book person, so I really didn't have a whole lot of knowledge of Iron Man. Uh, I had heard of the character. Uh, I do have some other friends who are really big into the comic books. So it wasn't uh, like out of the blue, new to me, but it's just not something that I was very familiar with. Yeah, that was kind of the thing was Marvel decided to kick this off with pretty much a lesser known character. And I think it was kind of a gamble to take a character. It wasn't Captain America to start off with, which most people would have assumed, you know, they could. Oh, yeah, we all know Cap. Yeah. And they couldn't do Spider-Man because Sony had already acquired that and they had a hold of that character. I mean, the Hulk 
had been done before. So I think they just kind of wanted a fresh start is what I really think they were after. And so going to a character like Iron Man, especially with the intention of leading to this all-connected universe and Iron Man being the person that even in the comics, he is the guy who brings together the Avengers. Right. And I think that was a good choice. I mean, you start with somebody that uh, not a whole lot of people have knowledge of and just build from there. Yeah. So let's go ahead and get into the characters. So Iron Man, Tony Stark was introduced in March of 1963 in Tales of Suspense, number 39. He of course, is created by the late, great Stan Lee. And Stan Lee actually admitted that he based the character of Tony Stark off of Howard Hughes. If you're not familiar with Howard Hughes, he was um, this really eccentric, rich, but very intelligent guy. Leonardo DiCaprio actually played him in a movie called The Aviator. Um, And that's what Stan Lee said. You know, Tony Stark is just like Howard Hughes. He's an inventor. He's an adventurer. He's a multimillionaire. He's a ladies' man, and ultimately, he's a nutcase. And I think you'll see that uh, character build throughout the Iron Man movie is, uh, you know, Tony is uh, kind of right along those same lines. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it, I know we're just talking about this first movie, but the characterization that Robert Downey Jr. brought to Tony Stark and then built upon it movie after movie after movie I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, you think about all the the actors that could have potentially played the role of Tony Stark, and I don't think anyone could have done this justice the way that Robert Downey Jr. did. I mean, that that was just the perfect role for him at the perfect time. Yeah, it's something now that at the time of the casting, a lot of people kind of were scratching their heads uh, with Robert Downey Jr. being cast... uh, Robert Downey Jr. had kind of had been in and out with Hollywood. He'd been in and out with drug problems and criminal charges. And, of course, it was all out there public. And the thing was, was I actually think that kind of worked in his favor because he kind of actually got to play himself as playing Tony Stark. Oh, yeah. I mean, you get it's like a, a fresh start. You get to show everybody, you know, you can pull yourself up out of the, you know, dark places of your life and uh, start fresh with a, with a different character. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, I will say as much as, you know, people kind of enjoy Tony or Robert Denny Jr.'s version of Tony, where he's kind of a smart aleck, the comic book Tony wasn't as much of a jerk to people. Uh, he yeah. did, he did have his problems and, and all, but he kind of kept to himself a little bit more. It really wasn't until Robert Downey Jr. gave him this kind of arrogant, uh, jerky nature that that started to see itself develop in the comic books. Oh yeah, I I did hear that uh, that the movie version of Tony was a lot more of a a smart aleck, a, a jerk, so to speak, even to his friends. Uh, not not so, sometimes not a very nice guy. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know why they decided to go that route. Maybe it was for the comedy aspect of it uh, in the movie, but I don't know. Was that really a necessary change from the comic books? Did they have to throw that out there? Well, I think it, it helped with the, the levity. You know, you say comedy. I say just bringing a little bit of levity to it because the okay. 
the character it's kind of like Bruce Wayne and there's a lot of parallels between Bruce Wayne and Tony Stark you know they're the rich guy who decides they want to be a superhero and uses their money in order to make that happen true now of course you know a little bit different in the background and the origin stories but I think in order to because you're talking this is 2008 this was right around the same time that Nolan is releasing the Dark Knight trilogy and so yeah. I think in order to keep those characters pretty separate, they just allowed Robert Downey Jr. to be Robert Downey Jr. and give himself yeah, a little bit that, in that there. That makes sense, yeah. And so it kind of kept them separate from being compared too much with Bruce Wayne and what Christopher Nolan was doing with Batman Begins at the time. And I think that makes sense. So our big villain in this uh, movie was... Obadiah Stane, also known as the Iron Monger. Now, he was first introduced in Iron Man number 163 in October of 1982, but that was just Obadiah. Uh, he did not actually don the Iron Monger suit, the big Hulk-looking uh, version of the Iron Man suit, until a few months later, almost, uh, well, I say a few months later, it was almost three years later, uh, Right. Iron Man 200 in November of 85, now, what was what's interesting about the Obadiah Stane character, we talked about different aspects here. In the comic books, he's more of a behind-the-scenes kind of villain. Right. And they didn't show any of this in the movie, but he had a little group that he had attack Iron Man and all that. They were called the Chessmen, and he was the king of the Chess... You know, king, oh, okay. queen, knight, you know. Yeah. He was the king, but he, he was never seen... And it wasn't found out until later um, that he was behind everything and revealed to be the villain. Now, yeah, in they this never mo- really touched on that during the movie. No, they, there was a lot of, and that's one of my problems with this movie in terms of its connection with the comics, is that Jeff Bridges, who played Obadiah, great job. Com- oh, absolutely great job. amazing. Right. You know, Jeff Bridges, is, I think, is great in everything he does. Um. <laughs> But the character, the actual characterization of Obadiah just, to me, doesn't work. He's really flat for our first big villain of our Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right, and I think it was a twist because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, in the movie, uh, Obadiah was portrayed as someone who kind of helped raise Tony after his father died. But that yeah. wasn't the case in the comics. Is that is that right? No, that was not the case in the comics. So in the in the comics, he's he's always been he's never been friendly with Tony. He hasn't had anything to do with uh, being a friend of the family and whatnot. He has okay. always been after Stark Industries. Uh, in the comics, right. he actually does eventually. Uh, lock Tony out of the company, and then he renames the company Stain International. Okay. And that actually leads to, and we'll get into this a little bit more when we're talking about the moving panels, but that actually gets into one of the big storylines in the comics, which we didn't see in this movie as much as we saw in the next, the sequel, and that's Tony's alcoholism. And that right. that is really what led to a big uh, resurgence of that part of Tony's character in the comics. Okay. But in the comic books, Obadiah is more, he's more of Lex Luthor, uh, again, making a comparison to DC. He's extremely intelligent. He's just a businessman. 
and of course, right. you know, everything he's, he does is evil. And of, I mean, Jeff Bridges, even in the movie, they're both bald. Uh, bald, so yeah. It's, yeah, it's Lex Luthor is what he is in the... Um, with with a better beard. I mean, uh, yeah. I don't think Lex had a, a nice beard like Obadiah had. Yeah, now, I mean, there are some, again, this is the Superman fan of me coming out. There are some storylines in which we do see Lex with a beard, um, with his big red beard. But the going back to Obadiah, the thing about Obadiah in the comics is that he was, again, a mastermind. He did everything from the shadows. Tony wasn't aware that Obadiah was pulling the strings and causing all of this stuff to happen until it's revealed... Uh, you know, a few issues in. And I honestly think that would have worked better if they had introduced Obadiah, had Obadiah seem to be a friend, but instead of revealing him as the villain in this movie, let there be some other villain and then reveal Obadiah in a sequel. Yeah, I mean, that, that could have worked. And again, not being that familiar with all of the Iron Man villains uh who who else could they have brought in to be the main villain this time around well of course they made mention they made mention of the 10 rings yeah so and we'll get into more of that a little bit later but of course the 10 rings being a a reference to the biggest uh villains uh villain excuse me uh of the mandarin which they brought in in iron man 3 to very lackluster but that's a different episode oh yeah so I'm sure, you know, some people would say, well, you know, just go ahead and set up the Mandarin. I don't think that would have worked either because he's too big of a villain for Iron Man to do in the first movie. Honestly, okay. if you flip-flop and you put Whiplash into the first movie, uh, a villain that, oh, yeah. you know, we we don't really care too much about, but, you know, that could have worked. Uh, they could have just done some some stuff with, with AIM early on. Okay. I, I, I don't know. I... That's just kind of say the reveal. Yeah, I just think that there's something should have been thought out a little bit more to kind of save the reveal of Obadiah being the mastermind, the one pulling the strings uh, and all that. You know, and maybe even have him be Ironmonger, but we don't find out who is in the suit. Okay, yeah. And then bring Ironmonger back in another, uh, in a sequel. I don't know, but I just really felt like Obadiah was was kind of a, like I said, a flat character, kind of predictable. I mean, we immediately, I don't know about you. I, I, I'm pretty sure that even in 2008 when I saw this movie, I immediately went, okay, he's the villain. I don't think I saw it quite that fast. I did realize it, you know, maybe the first 30 minutes. Uh, the more you got to see the character, uh, the way he uh, dealt with everybody, I think that kind of revealed itself a little bit later on. Not as quick for me, but yeah, still easy to pick up on. Yeah. All right, well, moving on to uh, our next character. That is the one played by Gwyneth Paltrow, and that is uh, Miss Pepper Potts. She was first introduced uh, the same year that Iron Man was introduced, but a few episodes later, Tales of Suspense number 45 in 1963. Now, funny little trivia fact. In one of the first panels, she is introduced as the name Kitty. And then is never mentioned as Kitty again in the entire issue. So you think that might have been a typo of some kind? That is the, the, the belief. The belief is that it was just a typo. It was corrected for additional prints. So I am pretty sure if anyone has Tales of Suspense number 45, a first issue with that bubble that 
where Tony is introducing her as Kitty, I'm sure that's worth something right there. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it is, too. Um, but funny thing is, is that when she's introduced, um, she is introduced as a, I think, a, I don't know exactly what the word I'm trying to think of here, but she's, again, this is 1963, so she was uh, like a temp, kind of. She was okay. hired to, to come in and do some, you know, office work, and she discovers an accounting error in the financial records, and it was an error that Tony himself made, and she brings it to his attention, and that immediately earns Tony's respect, because he not only likes that she goes straight to him about it, but the fact that she wasn't smart enough to find it. Do you think he made that error intentionally to uh, see who could find it, or was it really an error on his part? To be honest, I think it was really an error on his part. Okay. You know, I think Tony prides himself on being a perfectionist, as we kind of see even in yeah. this movie has that characterization. But going back to Pepper, here's my question. Because this is where a lot of people have their say about Gwyneth Paltrow and the way Gwyneth Paltrow kind of lives her, you know, normal life. Right. Is she good in this role? I have to admit, I liked her in this role. I've seen her in other movies and didn't like her as much. But I think in this role, for me, uh, she was the perfect Pepper Potts. I mean, she she nailed it. I mean, it was, to me, was uh, the perfect casting uh, for the character. Yeah, I agree. There is something about Gwyneth Paltrow's portrayal of Pepper that just immediately you are interested in her character you are interested in the relationship she has with tony and it just seems like a really good fit and again we're only talking about the first movie but you know the other movies have released as the movie went along uh, the movies went along her character is another one that just like tony just like robert downey jr she kept bringing more and more to that role and iron man 3 she shines in my opinion, oh, as yeah, Pepper Potts. Absolutely. Uh, again, just a, a perfect choice uh, for the for that role. Uh, I don't know that anybody else could have played it as well as uh, Gwyneth Paltrow did. Agreed. All right, moving on, we've got uh, Tony's best friend, uh, Mr. James Rhodes, also known as Rhodey. Uh, this character was introduced in Iron Man number 118 in January of 1979. In this movie, he is played by Terrence Howard. He would later get replaced, but for this movie, he is Terrence Howard. That's correct, and uh, there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, talk about why Terrence Howard was replaced. Uh, again, for me, uh, being that it was the introduction of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think Terrence did a good job with with the role of Rhodey. Yeah, uh, I mean, Terrence Howard was, you know, pretty hot around this time. Um, I know he had done Hustle and Flow, I think, a few years before this, which I believe earned him an Oscar nomination. So, yeah, Ter- I think Terrence Howard was... I liked him as Rhodey. Uh, nothing against Don Cheadle, who would replace him, but Terrence Howard was great in this. Yeah, I mean, he was Rhodey. I mean, that's just that's what it was. I was a yeah. little disappointed in the second one when uh, they had changed that character. I don't like it when a, a series of movies uh, starts moving characters around like that. Yeah. Yeah, it it is it is odd when you're watching a series and all of a sudden a character just changes uh, yeah. the actor. 
Now, there are some differences between the uh, movie version of Rhodey and the comic book version of Rhodey. They're really small, though. Uh, first off is actually the whole military thing. So, in the movie, he is a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. But in the comic books, he's just a lieutenant, and he's in the Marine Corps. For me, not a big difference. Uh, you know, that part of the uh, storyline really didn't matter to me. Uh, just the fact that he was in the military was good enough for me, and I didn't really care which part of it he was in. Yeah, I think putting him in the Air Force also makes a little bit more sense in terms of how they kind of tied him in. The fact that he is monitoring airspace, uh, and you know they do see Tony flying when he becomes Iron Man, and so I do understand the tie right. in there. Uh, of course, in the movie, he is the chief liaison to Stark Industries, and that's how he and Tony have known each other and gotten to know each other and become close friends. But in the comic books, they actually don't meet until after Tony has been kidnapped and as he's escaping. He actually runs into Rhodey while he's escaping. I'm pr I'm not 100%, but I'm pretty sure Rhodey was also um, being held captive. And okay. so they meet up, they escape together, and Tony eventually asks him to be his own personal pilot. Now, of course, we'll get into a little bit more of this. This is happening during Vietnam in the original story. And so uh, Rhodey, when he returns home, he needs a job and he becomes Tony's personal pilot. Of course, that's not in the movie. In the movie, he works for the military. He's the military liaison. So a little bit of difference there in terms of uh, kind of Rhodey's background and the relationship that he and Tony had. Do you think it was better to give them more of a background or do you think we shouldn't have been introduced to Rhodey until the escape? I think with the limited time you have in a, in a movie, uh, it was good enough for me to give him the background and just let them already be friends. Uh, it may have taken too much time to develop the background story between how they met. Uh, so I was okay with them already being friends. It didn't really make that much difference to me. Yeah, I agree. Um, when you've, you've got to cram in, you know, again, 1963 and Rhodey was introduced in 1979. So when you, when you're taking from the seventies, you know, you're taking almost 30 years at the time of information and trying to cram it into a movie, I agree. You, you got to uh, speed up some things. And so having a go ahead and having a established relationship between the two definitely helped make the story a little bit better. Right. Now, of course, in this movie, we do not see Rhodey become the superhero that we would later see him become. But there is a reference to it. And I remember when I saw this in theaters, I popped so much. Yeah. For the reference, um, if you're not familiar, at the near the end of the movie, when Rhodey is in Tony's uh, garage, basement, lab, whatever you want to call it, and he's guiding Tony, he looks over, sees a silver suit, and he yep. says, "Next time." And of I course, remember that. Yeah, that is the big reference to the fact that he would later become War Machine. Although, in the comics, in um, 1983, Tony has his relapse. This is actually the one I mentioned earlier when Obadiah takes over uh, Stark Industries. 
Tony has a relapse and he can no longer perform as Iron Man. And so um, Rhodey actually becomes Iron Man in the comic oh. books. And that's before that's he ever becomes... That, yeah, I, that's something I definitely wouldn't know if I didn't read the comics because they didn't make any reference to that in the movies at all. Yeah, well, again, gets into Iron Man 2 a little bit. But, um, you know, you got to remember in Iron Man 2, before he's War Machine, he kind of does don a little bit more of a Iron Man type suit. But yes, but again, he does become Iron Man. He actually becomes Iron Man again in the early 90s when they did a storyline in which everyone believed that Tony Stark was dead. And so Rhodey again became Iron Man. So that reference of him looking at the suit, it wasn't. It was a, a Mark, I think it was the Mark II, maybe Mark III suit. It was all silver right. suit. He sees it. He says, next time. So the fact that he's looking at this, the Iron Man suit is not only to me the reference that he's going to become Iron Man, but the fact that it's silver ties into, well, the Iron, the War Machine suit is going to be silver. So I found that fun. Yeah, now my memory isn't what it used to be, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but didn't we actually go see this together in the in the theater? See, I was thinking about that too. I don't know if we saw this one together okay. in theaters. I know we've seen a lot of right. them. You know, this was 2008, so you and I had known each other for about three years at the point because we met in 2005. Yeah. So there's a chance, but I actually don't think we we did. Okay, because I do remember us talking about that reference, uh, you know, next time and him becoming War Machine. So that's what made me think that maybe we had seen this in the theater together but there's a good chance we did we've seen a lot of about it later yeah you and i have seen a lot of movies together in theater so (laughs) we have indeed but you are talking about over a decade ago long time my friend yeah all right uh final character to kind of talk about and this one's just fun and that's the character of happy hogan he's the chauffeur and personal assistant to tony stark uh he was actually introduced in the same issue that pepper is introduced in in the Tales of Suspense number 45 in September of 1963. A little different, though, kind of similar with Rhodey. He's not already with Tony. He actually rescues Tony from a car crash. Uh, Tony is involved in a car crash after getting a little crazy behind the wheel, and it's actually Happy Hogan that rescues him. And he's a former boxer in the the comic, which they play off of a little bit in the next movie, Iron Man 2. Right, right. But what's fun is, for the people who don't know, Happy Hogan is played by Jon Favreau, who is also the director of the movie. That's correct. And I, again, think he was perfect for that part. He just, he was happy. I mean, I can't think of anybody else who would be happy. Yeah, I love that for such a small role. I mean, I don't even know how many lines he has in this movie. But he... Draws your attention when you see him from one of the first times after Tony's returned. He pulls up in the car. He walks around and he has, he's taking the Burger King from Tony. Oh yeah. Because Tony's yeah. first stop was to get Burger King, and I just found that to be a, a great little reference there. But love that, and John Favreau has done it a lot. He he appears in small little bit roles in the movies he directs. He's done it. I mean, he's starred in movies he's directed. <laughs> That's true. But I love that he took this and he, again, just like I've talked about with Gwyneth Paltrow and Robert Downey Jr., from movie to movie, even when John Favreau was not the director, if Happy Hogan was in it, 
John Favreau brought more and more to that character each time. Yeah, just a great job of building that character and and making it his own. All right, so now we're going to move into what we call the moving panels. So this is the part of the parts of the movie that have their connections to the comics or don't really have their connection to the comics or are very loosely based on the comics. And I wanted to start off with, uh, he was kind of a character, but I wanted to start off with Jarvis. Now, in the movie, Jarvis is kind of like Tony's Alexa. Yep. What, I f- is, what many people may not know is that Jarvis in the movie actually stands for just a rather very intelligent system. Yeah, I would not have got, gathered that from anything in the comics or in the movie itself. I don't think it was even mentioned what Jarvis stood for. Yeah, it, well, now it wouldn't be in the comics because Jarvis, as a computer, did not exist in the comics. Uh, in the comic That's books, right. Jarvis is Tony's butler. He is Edwin Jarvis. He is just the butler. But as we talked about earlier, with Nolan reintroducing everybody to Batman, and of course you've got Alfred, yep. I don't think they wanted that, again, connection, that Tony has a butler that helps him with his superhero stuff. It's interesting enough, uh, as I was preparing for our discussion about Iron Man, I actually read an article that said the the uh, character, the voice actor for Jarvis, recorded all of his lines in about two hours. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty interesting. He, he spent about two hours recording all of his lines, and that's all the work he did. And it was such a main character for me in the movie because he really ran the show he ran the suit he ran the house you know you always heard Jarvis taking care of things yeah I'm voiceover work though man that is a dream gig because uh, again you can just come in you don't have to worry about how you look um, you just got to worry about your voice and then you know like you're saying you can just sit there and they hand you the lines and you record however many different versions you need and hand me my check and y'all have a good day <laughs> that's it yeah so another fun little piece of trivia, since you brought that up, even though this would be in a future movie. So the voice of Jarvis is Paul Bettany. Uh, he's just voice in this. He would later appear in physical form in a, in sequels. But when Jarvis is no longer Tony's computer and it becomes Friday, Friday is voiced by Jennifer Conley, who is actually Paul Bettany's real-life wife. Oh, now that is an interesting little twist. Yeah, so I, you know, I just find it fun. It's like again, Paul Bettany had this wonderful job, wonderful gig as the voice of uh, Tony's computer assistant, and then when he loses that, he just gets his wife the job. And that's uh, the the way it should be. <laughs> All right, so I alluded to this a little bit earlier. Um, one of the this movie is is of course an origin story for Iron Man. So we're going to talk about the origin story a little bit. So obviously they had to make some changes because you're releasing this movie in 2008, so you can't do the original setting of the story, which was Vietnam. He was uh, he was overseas. He is kidnapped by a communist warlord named Wong Chu. Um, in this movie, he's replaced by a character named Raza. Of course, the difference there is that in the comics, when Tony escapes... Uh, Wong Chu is actually killed in the process, whereas okay. in this movie, the character of Raza does survive, at least the initial escape. Right. They, of course, updated this one to be uh, Iraq in 2008, and instead of being communist, it's a group called the Ten Rings, 
which is definitely a reference, as I mentioned earlier, to the Mandarin. Now, if you're not familiar with this reference, if you do think back to when the Mandarin appeared in Iron Man 3, the Mandarin wears ten rings. He wears a ring on each finger. And in the okay. comics, those rings give him power and all very similar to the the Infinity Gauntlet that you would see in the movies. Uh, but they give him power. We do see Raza wearing a ring. I don't know if we're to assume that's one of the Mandarin's rings or what their idea was. But I did kind of find it fun that, you know, Mandarin is a big Iron Man villain. And so to introduce the name of the terrorist organization that kidnaps him to be the Ten Rings, definitely calling out to the Mandarin character. Oh, yeah, that's, that's too similar to not associate the, the Ten Rings and the Mandarin there. And this origin story, very similar to when they updated Tony's story in the extremist storylines in the comic books back in 2005, so just a few years earlier. In that one, he's kidnapped in Afghanistan by the Taliban. You're, you know, you're kind of going to avoid some of that in a movie because you don't want to offend. You don't want to, honestly, you don't want to date it as much as you can help it. So giving right. it, giving it just being in Iraq. I mean, Iraq, as far as we know, will always exist making it a fictional uh, organization the 10 rings makes that work you know you know so it's going to work when you're watching it many years later exactly uh, another big part of tony's origin story is yensen the guy who helps him build the suit in the movie he's just called yensen at least in the first movie he is just called yensen in the comic books he is ho yensen uh, he is a physicist a scientist um, that helps Tony build the suit. He's, he's prisoner with Tony. So all of that was still the same. So I, I like that they kept all of that. Yeah, I really like the character of Jensen. I, I think he uh, the, the job was very well done. Uh, the actor who portrayed Jensen, I uh, can't recall his name right now, but uh, in in the movies when uh, he's going down the the cave to, to give Tony some more time to suit up, uh, you know, you just kind of feel like, Maybe if they can just get out of this, everything is going to be okay. But you knew that something bad was going to happen to him. Yeah, I mean, it's a superhero origin story. There had to be something tragic. And, you know, the death of Yensen is kind of that that death that has to happen in the origin story for Iron Man. Happened in the comics, happens in the movie. But I, I agree. I like that they gave him kind of a, a heroic ending, at least. Right. Uh Another quick thing I want to hit is the suit itself. So in the movie, they make this a key point is that Tony's little heart, his his mini arc reactor, is what powers the suit. You know, without it, you know, you, you can't control the suit. In the comic books, that hasn't always been true. So in the comic books, it's actually been powered several different ways. Different types of devices have powered it. My favorite, though is that, and I've, I really wanted to find this, but I remember seeing this in the comic book, is that Tony could just plug it in and charge it, like a phone. Oh, wow. Like, just go just, up to a wall outlet, plug it in. Yeah, uh, you, you need that little parking space at the, at the mall with the, the charger there. So, yeah, just drop in, plug up, and you're good to go. Yeah, and, and to be honest, is I think that's a that would have made for a great part of the story is if it was powered by something that could have... And I know they do have where he loses power and all, but if they could have done something to where the suit does drain power as he uses it. 
And so yeah. even if it is the arc reactor, the fact that the arc reactor in his chest is keeping him alive, well, if he uses the suit too much, it's going to pull energy from it and maybe it drains it to where he goes into cardiac arrest or something. So I really think they could have played more with the suit being powered by something that wasn't, you know, an infinite source of power. Yeah, I think they did play that off as uh, perpetual energy just never gives up. Uh, you know, maybe the Energizer Bunny would have done a good job as a uh, power supply. <laughs> uh, yeah, just seeing, you know, seeing the giant sea battery in the back of Iron <laughs> yeah, that... Man. Uh, another thing, and I, I, you know, had to bite my tongue not to bring this up in the character profile, but the romantic nature or romantic relationship, I should say, between Tony and Pepper was actually not from the comics at all. Okay, so why do you think the the movie, uh, the, the directors or the producers decided to make them a couple? Uh, because it's a movie and you not only want, you want as, mu- as many demographics as you can to come in to see your movie. So not right. only do you need the action and the comedy and the suspense, but you need that, that romance in there too. And, you know, putting uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Gwyneth Paltrow together would have just worked perfectly. So how far off is that from the comic books? Uh, pretty pretty off. So in the comics, uh, I, I won't deny that Pepper is attracted to Tony in the comics. But it's more of like a an admirer. You know, she, she expresses it from afar. And Tony is okay. completely oblivious to all of it. Whereas in this movie, they pretty much imply that, you know, as soon as Tony sees Pepper, I know at the the little ball or whatever, the gala event, sees right. her in the dress, you know, you can tell Tony is, he, he's got his eye on Pepper. Exactly. But again, that goes into the characterization, as we talked about earlier with Tony. In the comics, Tony is a, he's a playboy. He is the Bruce Wayne type character, so he's always got a different woman, different girl, you know, on his arm, uh, or girls, period. And Tony isn't really for the whole monogamous relationship. And you gotta think, it makes sense to be, for him being a superhero, you know, he's gotta, he can't get close to anybody. Right. And so in the comic books, talking about how far off this goes, in the comic books, Remember I said that Pepper and Happy are introduced in the same issue. They were. Well, in the comic books, it is later developed that Pepper and Happy actually end up in a relationship to the fact that they actually get married. Oh, wow. So imagine if that had happened in the movies. That is kind of difficult to imagine. And again, someone uh, like myself who is not familiar with the comics, that's just, uh, that's really far-fetched in my mind. Yeah. But so, yeah, big, big difference there. Again, something that you don't really get upset too much um, because it is a movie. You know, you can't have all of you're not going to develop any type of love triangle bit because that's not how it worked in the comics. It was just Pepper and Happy were a couple and then Tony, they were just friends with Tony. Right. It worked better, if you ask me. Um, And like I said, I think it worked in the comics because Tony needed to maintain his secret identity which is another thing that was really big between this movie and the comic books, is the fact that this com- this movie ends with him revealing that he is Iron Man. Oh yeah, he did not stick to the cards that uh, Coulson handed him at all. 
Oh, oh, this Agent Coulson. I have so many things. I, I need to do a, a whole one shot just on how Agent Coulson was so important to the MCU. Right. Uh, just real quick, Phil Coulson introduced in this movie because it is the first of the MCU movies. He was supposed to be a bit part. In fact, I don't even think he was supposed to really be a named character. I think he was just supposed to be, you know, S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. Right. But Clark Gregg plays, played him so beautifully that he became a staple for these movies. Just loved every minute of it. But again, like I said, I can spend 30 minutes just talking about that character. Yeah, certainly developed his own little cult following. Yeah. So going back to Tony and the secret identity. So this was actually a decision by Kevin Feige. If you don't know who Kevin Feige is, Kevin Feige is pretty much the head of Marvel Studios. He's the one that makes all the big decisions for all of these Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. And Kevin Feige said that when they started the Marvel Cinematic Universe, another way to kind of separate them from DC was that none of the Marvel characters would have secret identities. They would all be known. And so they started that right off the bat with Tony revealing that he is Iron Man. Of course, very different from the comics. In the comics, Tony spent decades keeping his secret identity, making everyone believe that Iron Man was actually a, a bodyguard, which you talked about Coulson's index cards. That's actually the one of the ideas they come up with, is that Iron Man is his bodyguard in a Stark okay. you know, suit. And that would have made sense uh, if you're trying to keep the secret identity. But like you said, if MCU decides not to keep them, Man, what a way to blow it up right there at the end. Yeah, so big big, big little reveal there. Tony just looking at the camera and I am Iron Man and your big ending. and Yeah. Everybody's just going, what? And the thing was, that wasn't the biggest part. Nope, there's always a little more. Yeah, so of course this being the first movie of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we also got our first uh, end credit scene. And in this end credit scene, we see Samuel L. Jackson playing Nick Fury. Another thing that uh, you can speak on this, Reese, but another thing that we've talked about this a lot, that people not familiar with the comic probably had no clue who he was. Absolutely. uh, Not a bit. And, you know, the choice for Samuel L. Jackson to play Nick Fury, uh, you know, some people really like Nick uh, or really like Samuel L. Jackson, and some people... Uh, have an issue because they think he's just been in everything. Uh, for me personally, I think he was the perfect Nick Fury. He just has that swagger. He has that presence uh, about him that just makes you believe he is the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh, yeah. No, Samuel L. Jackson was was perfect Nick Fury. Uh, of course, we would see him in just about all the Marvel movies uh, from then on. Real quick, it was... Kind of a controversial casting because Nick Fury was not a bald black man in the comics. He was actually a white guy with brown hair and gray streaks uh, on the side of his head. Kind of, you know, scruffy looking. He did have the eye patch, you know, cigar in his mouth. You know, very different type of character. But, you know, Samuel L. Jackson came in. He played Nick Fury. That That is Nick Fury right there. That is Nick Fury, hands down. Uh, the Absolutely. same way. Yeah. Again, you're talking about the the comic book Nick Fury. I, I do recall seeing some pictures of him, but it, it wasn't so much of a change for me that it just made me gasp and say, "Oh my gosh, what have they done with the character?" No, it, Nick's the Nick's Fury is he's Samuel L. Jackson. That's 
just well, hands down. And it okay. helped that now Samuel L. Jackson was not the first actor to play Nick Fury in a live action movie. There actually is, and I would love to do an episode on this one day, there actually is a Nick Fury movie uh, from the early 90s in which Nick Fury is played by David Hasselhoff. Oh my goodness, the Hoff. Yes, the Hoff. Yeah, did, did not even know that. Yeah, so extremes there. But we get the ending where Nick Fury is in Tony's house and then utters the now infamous lines I want to talk to you about the Avenger initiative and of course comic book nerds everywhere went nuts that he mentioned Avengers there you go just lost their minds yeah had and, no... I, and I have to admit for someone who doesn't know the comics it's it's pretty uh, you know I got pretty stoked about that myself uh, just knowing there's more to come yeah it, but yeah just knowing that the Avengers was coming was just was a great way to kick off this Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I know there were other movies that then tried to follow suit. Um, There was Universal trying to do their Dark Universe. Uh, They actually tried a couple of times. They did Dracula Untold and then tried to set that up to kick off a Universal Monsters universe. Then when that didn't work, they even tried again with the Tom Cruise Mummy movie and they introduced uh, Dr. Jekyll into that one to kind of again start this universe okay. and again that didn't happen of course dc rushed it a little bit when they decided to to start their dceu and just went a little too fast making justice league only the third movie they needed more time to develop more characters in that one for sure yeah and that was just so great was realizing oh we're gonna get to see the avengers develop And it does, I mentioned that at the beginning, that does tie into the comics. Iron Man is the character that created the Avengers. And it was actually, it happened the same year he was introduced. Iron Man was introduced in March of 1963, and he formed the Avengers in September of 1963. Okay. But now, funny thing, though, is in the movie, if you remember, he makes, he's, working on the new suit and he makes it gold and he talks about how it's a little much. And so he decides to put the Ferrari red, uh, onto the suit when he starts the Avengers, his suit is just gold. So he goes from the bulky gray suit in that first issue. When he develops the cleaner looking suit, it is a gold suit. So when Iron Man starts the Avengers, when you get those first issues with the Avengers, he's in an all gold suit. He doesn't actually add the red to his suit until same year, though, a couple months later in December of 1963. And that's where we get the red into the suit and we get the more, uh, not exactly what we see now and in the movie. It was a little more bulky looking, but we got more of the yellow, gold, you want to call it, and red that we're more familiar with Iron Man. Right, just what you're used to seeing. Yeah. All right. So anything else you want to talk about in terms of the movie? Anything that pointed out uh anything that was of interest to you that maybe we didn't cover just something about the movie in general now there was one character and we've talked about this before when um i can't remember the character's name who who played the character that obadiah went to the scientist and talked about how tony made the miniature arc reactor in a cave and uh 
the scientist for some reason. It was just really funny. He's like, well, I'm not Tony Stark. Yeah, um, I know exactly what you're talking about. So who was that guy? Yeah, are, are you you uh, saying that because you know I know, or are you asking? Well, I I hope you know because I can't remember for the life of me who that character was. Yeah, so if you go back, there's one of the scientists uh, that Obadiah kind of berates, talking about how Tony has made this you know arc reactor and they can't get the big one to work. That um, scientist is actually played by. Peter Billingsley, right? Who more people would know as Ralphie from a Christmas Ralphie. Story. That's right. You shoot my eye out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why could I not remember that? Uh, I don't know why, but that was you know for me that's always a funny line when uh, Obadiah is just giving him down the road about how Tony built this in a cave, and uh, here he is. Well, I'm not Tony Stark. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was just a, a funny comeback to me. Yeah, and it's it it's a you know it's a fun little cameo there. Uh, Peter Billingsley, you know, didn't do an awful lot in terms of acting uh, after Christmas Story after he became an adult, but he has done a lot of directing. Um, and he and John Favreau, I think, are really good friends because he actually also has a cameo in Elf, which is another John Favreau movie. There you go. All right, so we've reached the uh, final segment of the show, which we call the final decision. Which uh, here on moving panels we say that it is either a bag it, a stack it, or a trade it. Pretty much we're talking about the same way you would treat it as a comic book. So bag it means it's a keeper. You're going to seal it up. You're going to add it to your collection. You're going to enjoy it anytime you, you know, pull it out to watch. Stack it means that you enjoyed watching it, but you're really just going to kind of toss it to the side. You may look at it from time to time. It might be one that you know. On a weekend, you go, hey, you know, let's watch this. And then, of course, trade it means I'd rather have something else. You know, this wasn't for me. Not good with this. Uh, let's do something else. So bag it, stack it, or trade it. Reese, as the guest, you make the first decision. Well, Laramie, I appreciate you allowing me to be the first one to go and say that I'm going to bag it. Uh, this is definitely a keeper for me. It's one that I can watch uh, anytime, uh, all the time. Uh, I don't have to wait for the weekend. Uh, it's just a good one for me. It's it's very entertaining from start to finish. I'm definitely going to bag it. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I say bag it just for, as I mentioned right off the top in the show, uh, it's the granddaddy. It's the movie that started this amazing Marvel Cinematic Universe. I know I'm a bigger DC guy, but these movies just made superhero movies something on a different level is what it did. Just put them on a different level. Robert Denny Jr., as we mentioned, was the perfect casting and the perfect way to kick this off uh, and get this going. He, you know, playing a superhero, you have to own the character. Christopher Reeve did that with Superman. As much as that Superman is similar to the comics, it is still what Christopher Reeve brought to it that made Christopher Reeve so iconic as Superman. Robert Downey Jr. has done the exact same thing with Iron Man. Robert Downey Jr. will forever be identified as Iron Man, no matter what else he's done. I love him in the Sherlock Holmes movies, and I know he's, there's rumor that he's going to do another one now that he's done with Iron Man. I love him as Sherlock Holmes. I love Chaplin. I love Robert Downey Jr. and other things, but he will forever 
be linked as Iron Man. And for that, this is a baggage. I definitely agree. You ask anybody uh, if they can name a movie that uh, Robert Downey Jr. has been in, and I guarantee Iron Man is going to be the first thing that comes to most people's most minds. Definitely. Yeah, most definitely. All right, any last words? Any any other thing you want to say there, Reese? Uh, I don't have anything else, Laramie. Just uh, want to thank you for allowing me to be a part of the show and uh, you know, just to have a good time talking about one of my favorite movies. Well, it, it, of course, was uh, an honor for me to, to get you, again, one of my best friends that you and I, as we mentioned earlier, go to see a lot of these movies that I'll be talking about in, in this podcast. Uh, we've seen a lot of them together in theaters. And even though, yes, you were not on my very first episode, you will always be considered my first guest since you did record my practice episode uh, way back um, many months ago. Uh, Thank you, Laramie. I appreciate that. And thank you, Reese. For Moving Panels, I'm Laramie Wells, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. Hello, movie viewers and fellow movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, and I'm the creator and host of Movie Views Presents, the 80s flick flashback podcast. See, I love the 80s, and I have a great appreciation and nostalgic passion for the classic 80s flicks that birthed my love for movies and ultimately helped shape my childhood. On each episode, I'll discuss, with a special guest co-host, of course, a different film from the 1980s. We'll share memories, favorite characters, iconic scenes, and even share some behind-the-scenes stories along the way. We'll discuss famous blockbusters like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Coming to America, Ghostbusters, Dirty Dancing, Top Gun, Die Hard, and many, many more, as well as some other cult classics and even lesser-known flicks we discovered on cable TV or the now-defunct video rental stores. Remember those? No matter what 80s flick we choose to talk about, we'll always have a good time, so come and check us out. You can find the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast on major podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and more. Be sure to subscribe or follow so you don't miss a single episode. Once again, I'm Tim Williams, and I hope you'll join me for the next 80s Flick Flashback.